Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. All right. Ready to go, Reg? All set? All right. Let me just get the the microphone ready here. All right. Let's get started. Are you all set? You look like you're uh, raring to go which is a good sign. I like the way the needles are bopping there, so keep them stuck right where they're at. And we'll do this thing. All right, strap in. Let's go. Episode 277. Write it down in the book. Let's go. I'll give you the uh, three S's. I'll give you the countdown. You give me the music. I'll give you a podcast. How's that for an agenda? Sounds good. All right, are you ready? All right, let's go. Three S's. Star, smile, strong. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com. Or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. And don't forget to subscribe and to rate this podcast. But most importantly, don't forget to tell your friends. So send them a link, send them a message, let them know that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podcasting, and it could be or should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated, and of course, that extra effort, oh, it's extra credit. We've always loved extra credit in school, right? Well, you get some extra credit for that. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, you go to to the WGN Radio website, go to the podcast section, hit the prompt for this podcast, and you will find all previous... 276 episodes. According to my periodic chart, that must mean that this is episode 277. Welcome. So, as this podcast is posted uh we have recently a few days ago commemorated the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and no doubt over the last several weeks as this important date approached uh hopefully you have seen some television shows or perhaps you listen to some radio shows talking about this event Remembering that day, the shock, the horror, the incredulous reality of what was happening. It, it, it really shook, I think, everyone on the planet. And that's not easy to do. And to think of it 20 years later, two decades, um, is an important milestone because... 
for the first time now, there are adults in their early 20s who really don't have firsthand recollections of this event. They are alive. They are adults. They are now out in the world on their own, hopefully, to some extent. And yet, many of them weren't born. If you're 20 years old, you were, you were maybe weren't even born yet in September. Or if you were in maybe three or four years old, you probably don't have any firsthand memories of watching this on television. You were too young. You've grown up knowing about 9-11, but you don't really have the same connection, the same memories, and the same emotional investment in that moment, in that event, in that time in history. And so that is a little unique. About five years ago, when it was the 15th anniversary, uh, you know, the, the same, those same people were on this earth, right? But they were teenagers at that point. You didn't really think too much about, about them in that context. But now they are in their 20s. They are adults. And we've got a whole generation now that, that thinks and hears about 9-11 in, in a completely different way than, than those of us who were there, who were alive and, and saw this firsthand on television. And it remains a jarring experience. And any time you, you may forget about it, all you need to do is look at some of the footage from that date on television or some of the photos, and I think it brings it, it, brings it right back to you. Now, certainly, uh, I remember growing up in a time when my parents, their moment in history in terms of where were you when, seemed to be Pearl Harbor on the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which basically brought the U.S. into World War II. We were not in World War II for the first two years of that war. America has, has always been somewhat of an isolationist country in that we... We, we, we understand and we appreciate and we will sometimes get involved um, with foreign affairs, but we, we really are very self-centered and we think the world revolves around us. And, and prior to World War II, we were not quick to, to jump in in foreign affairs, especially way over there across the pond in Europe. And even before World War II, the United States was certainly a formidable country, but still not viewed as a major, major world power, considering that at the time of World War II, we were in a Great Depression that had started in the 20s and was still going on in the early 40s. So economically, we were not uh, some juggernaut, some powerhouse on the world stage. And proof of that is the fact that the Japanese would have the, the boldness to attack us and bring us and basically deliberately 
bringing us into World War II. We were not in it. But the Japanese clearly must have felt that we were not some invincible adversary. We were not some, uh, you know, some sleeping giant that, uh, that they were afraid of, that they didn't want to enter into World War II. They obviously thought that we were a vulnerable country, that they could ultimately take over. They saw what was happening in Europe and how quickly uh, Hitler was, was steamrolling over Europe. And Japan must have thought that they could do the same with America, with a sneak attack at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. And so this was really uh Pearl Harbor was was America's uh you know coming out party if you will on the world stage. We were involved in World War 1, but uh you know that was mostly viewed as a European war. And as I said, the country especially after World War 1 became very isolationist was saying, "Hey, you know, that's that's Europe's problem, not ours." That was long before we became a global society. Technology as well as politics have now made this world very global. But for a long, long time, especially America, since we were our own little entity, you know, far away from Europe, far away from uh, on the other side of the uh, the Pacific, from uh, you know Russia and the Soviet Union and Asia, we sort of felt like we're we're fine just where we're at but obviously the attack on pearl harbor uh ignited an immediate response and a heightened uh patriotism that you don't do that i mean we we were as i said earlier kind of like a sleeping giant um they stirred, you know, that, 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 that bombing by the Japanese on Pearl Harbor uh, stirred up the sleeping giant. And maybe we always were capable and we were this giant, but we were, as I said before, just in our little cocoon. But World War II forced us to get on the world stage and forced us um, to to get involved and then maybe even surprised us or maybe didn't, but just maybe didn't surprise us of our capabilities, but, but, uh, but injected our, uh, our country with a patriotism and a, and a can do attitude. We were feeling kind of down on ourselves. Don't forget the, as I said before, the country was mired in a decades long depression with, with high unemployment and, uh, uh, you know, people without jobs and, and people struggling to get by. So the morale of the country was not all that high. And World War II put us in a spot where we had to step up on the world stage, and we certainly did. But as I said before, I think at the time before that, the fact that the Japanese would even consider such a bold move to bring us into world war ii and to think that that by the surprise attack that they could possibly steamroll over the united states and 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 conquer it shows you where we where 
where we were at that time in the world and the perception of us around the world. After World War II, our perception around in, in the rest of the globe changed. Our perception within our country changed. We suddenly were, we, you know, World War II got us out of the Depression because manufacturing started up. The government was paying many countries to convert their manufacturing to create, uh, you know, different um, different weapons and different uh, products for the war. And basically, we got out of the Depression thanks to World War II. So it's ironic. And when World War II is over, our place in the in the world and the place in our minds was completely changed. We we certainly felt like we helped, if not won World War II, and made safe made the world safe for democracy was the was the phrase, and we became a world power after World War II. And it's it's interesting that if if the Japanese had not attacked us at Pearl Harbor, what might America's future be right now. Interesting to think. Interesting thing to think about. But it is I, to get back to my original point. The attack on Pearl Harbor was so jarring and such a surprise, and and uh, and it, it was an assault on on our not only physically on our country, but it was an assault on us figuratively, on our psyche as a country. As I said before, that that. We were viewed as a vulnerable country that could be taken over. And that sort of snapped us out of our funk as a culture. And also, as I said before, snapped us out of our depression economically. So when it happened, it was a shock to the system uh, in this country. And of course, that's when FDR made his famous, a date that will live in infamy. December 7th, 1941. But the question now is, is it really a date that will live in infamy? Has it lived on? As I said before, in my parents' lifetime and in their generation, they held December 7th, 1941 as a sacred date, as a date that they always took pause and and when whenever December seventh rolled along, on the news and in the newspapers, uh, they certainly made note of it. Today is the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. It was a day that everybody who was alive at that time held in great regard. You don't you didn't celebrate it because it was a sad day and lives were lost. But it was certainly a day that was perhaps equal then maybe 20-some years later when John F. Kennedy was killed in one of those moments in time where people said, where were you when you heard? You, you know, the day, the day after Pearl Harbor, uh, there were hundreds of thousands of men who immediately signed up yes there was a draft but many people many men at the time because that was basically at the time the women were not in combat uh they went down and 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 volunteered no one does that to america 
And so for my lifetime, my parents were, were obviously alive during that time. And I remember them always commemorating that day and and it and it they just seemed to stop and uh and 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 take a pause like oh it's pearl harbor day today it was never an official holiday right but it was this date that just stuck in people's minds who were alive that day in fact i really uh as a as a little kid i i you know i didn't know what pearl harbor was right i'm just growing up i wasn't around for it 20 some years before i was born but what was interesting i remember as a little kid um i think i was about nine years old nine or ten years old uh my family and my extended family some cousins and aunts and uncles we all went on a trip to hawaii and this was in the mid-70s and Hawaii was just becoming a, a major tourist attraction, um, especially sparked by the popularity of the TV show Hawaii Five O. But Hawaii was beginning to become this really popular, and now, of course, it's one of the the major tourist spots in the world. But uh, it was don't forget Hawaii only became a state, I believe, in the late fifties, and so. Uh, it was like, you know, they had to build up to to create this kind of tourist attraction with hotels and things like that. And so by the mid-70s, Hawaii was just beginning to be this, um, this new, uh, you know, exciting des- destination for, for, for tourism. And so we went there. And if you go to Honolulu, that's where Pearl Harbor was. It, Pearl Harbor, if you don't know, was a was a was a was an army base uh, for uh, you know for, for for destroyers for ships, and that's what the Japanese destroyed. They destroyed our naval fleet at Pearl Harbor, and to, still to this day, there is a memorial in the water where. Those ships were sunk, most notably the uh, the Arizona, which this monument is built on top of, and you can still see remnants of the ship. And there is this very unique memorial that is in the water at Pearl Harbor that you can visit. And I remember going there, as a young kid with my parents and my extended family. And, and once again, my aunts and uncles were all, you know, born during the, you know, were alive during Pearl Harbor. And it was the first time I, I remember, I, I remember, you know, once again, not really knowing what we're going to see Pearl Harbor today. I don't know. I didn't know if that was a person who's Pearl Harbor, like Pearl Bailey. I don't know. And Google Pearl Bailey. But, um, you know, I was only 10 years old. I, I didn't, as I said before, I didn't have any connection to Pearl Harbor at all. I heard about it in passing. Um, but when we visited the the Pearl Harbor Memorial in Hawaii, it certainly uh, came to life for me. I was still trying to grasp what the event was, and I never, you know, couldn't really fully um, appreciate the emotion tied to it for those that 
went through it, who lived it. But I remember, and I can still clearly remember, being at that memorial and seeing my mom and dad and aunts and uncles uh, really walking through that memorial uh, in a different state of mind, in a, in a different sense of reverence. The only, rev- the only time I'd seen my parents with that kind of a reverence was when I would go with them to the cemetery, you know, to see, uh, you know, their parents and, uh, you know, and relatives. And there would be that kind of very calm, reverential, uh, quiet behavior. But that was the only time I really saw that was at the cemetery. And suddenly I saw them exhibiting that same behavior here. And so I remember even at a young age that clicking into me like, wow, they're, they, they, this is the way they act at the cemetery. This, this must have some, some deeper meaning for them. And then I remember my dad was a, a veteran of World War II. Lucky for him, uh, it was toward the end of World War II, literally the last year of the war. He was drafted in February of 1945 and of course by the summer uh the war was over um but he was drafted and he did go overseas he did go to japan now by the time he went to japan the war was over and we were there more in an occupational um kind of of mode but the war had ended but he was still in uh, you know, the army, and he still was there in Japan. Uh, and so while he didn't see any fighting, because by the time he would have been ready to perhaps go and fight, the war was over. His three months of basic training and whatever, the, the war was over, at least in Europe. And then soon after, obviously, when we dropped the bombs in Japan. So, but he was a World War II veteran. And that was the first time, and my dad was one of those, I mean, he, once again, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't in any of the major battles and things like that, so it wasn't as if he had some PSD kind of, um, you know, uh, reactions to the war, but still, you know, I mean, he was 18 years old, and he was, and his life was upended, and he didn't know in February that the war was going to be over, so I'm sure that he had a lot of, uh, you know, fear and, and what was going to happen. Um, he didn't really talk too much about his war experience, even though he wasn't even in battle. It was just an, it was an interesting thing with World War II veterans. Uh, they just really didn't talk about that experience very much, even though it was, you know, quite life-changing for the entire world. Um, but when we did go to the Pearl Harbor Memorial, I remember him, uh, being in this very solemn mode, which was very different for him. And if I remember correctly, because I have not been back to Hawaii since then, uh, I, I believe there is a wall in that memorial with all of the, of the names of the soldiers that were killed at Pearl Harbor during the Japanese attack. And I remember distinctly, I don't know who it was, but I remember my dad seeing a name on the wall of somebody from his neighborhood 
that he grew up with who died in Pearl Harbor. And I just remember him, you know, kind of looking at the name and saying, oh, there's, you know, you know, whatever his name was. And I'll never forget that. And so, as I said, I, 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 I wasn't around. I don't, I, I couldn't feel the emotion that, uh, that my parents' generation felt toward Pearl Harbor. But I certainly could see the effect it had on them. So now flash forward to today, and once again, we've got an entire generation who doesn't really, I mean, and then there's a generation now younger that have no idea what Pearl Heart, what, what 9-11 really was. They all see the pictures, but they weren't even born, right? If there's someone who's 10 or 15 years old now, that probably feels the same way that, it, that Pearl Harbor felt to me. You know, to some extent, uh, I know it's important. I know something bad happened. I see the pictures of it. It looks terrible, but I don't have that immediate connection. But in many ways, for those of us who were not around for World War II, uh, or who were too young, in my case, too young to even have have any recollection, I wasn't born yet, uh, of of John F. Kennedy's assassination, then, yeah, you know, 9-11 is, is, is one of those touchstone moments. It is our Pearl Harbor. It is our JFK assassination. It is that event that you will never forget, and you will always remember where you were when you heard it. Now, what's interesting from my standpoint on 9-11 is like the rest of everyone who, except anybody who was in New York, and certainly if anybody who was down near the World Trade Center, then your memories and and your experience of that day is much different than than many people's. But if you're like me and 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 most of us around the country and around the world, we saw this happen on television, and and it was horrific, and it was. It was baffling. I mean, it, there was there was such a swirl of emotions because there were so many things going on at the same time. There was this tragedy that we saw uh, that, that that this building was 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 on fire. That apparently a plane hit it. the The, the initial thoughts were that it was some accidental kind of uh, you know plane running, you know, going off track or something. And then on live television, we saw another plane deliberately go into the second tower. And then suddenly, everything clicked in. And it was like, okay, wait a minute. Uh, so not only do we have this, this terrible tragedy of this building burning in front of our eyes, but now we're fearing that we're also under attack. From where or from what or from how or what? I mean, there was, there was such chaos and confusion and fear, and then we're hearing about the Pentagon getting attacked, and we're hearing about the other flight that was uh, that went down in Pennsylvania that uh, reportedly was was set to go for the Capitol. I mean, this would have been it was already a major, uh, you know, moment of chaos and mayhem and evil um, happening. Um, and it could have actually been much worse. And for those of us here in Chicago, uh, there was great wonder and fear because we've got 
you know, if, if they're going to bomb the World Trade Center, then why wouldn't they go after the Sears Tower, or the John Hancock, some of the largest buildings in the in the country? And if they can do that in 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 uh, in Washington D.C. and in New York, well, I mean, O'Hare Field is what fifteen miles away from downtown. So there was there was. For the first, the next day, or, and for the the next week, and 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 actually a couple of weeks, there was great fear and uh, of of what. But that that day, in the midst of trying to digest what was happening, when you were seeing those towers burning and then ultimately crashing, we also didn't know what was next or what was happening. And it was just a, it was just a, a, a time of of a, a swirl of of emotions of of sadness and anger and fear. And apprehension, and 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 you know a, a kind of a, an odd patriotism, like well, how could this? You know, it was it was shock and incredulous and and and, and vulnerability. There was a, a swirl of emotions, and if you were watching this on TV, you know you you just you couldn't believe it was happening. Now my. And so I went through all of those same things. And I'm sure that you shared many of the, of the emotions that I was just describing. What I find interesting about my memories of 9-11 are not only that day and that moment and those, the, 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 the next couple of days afterward um, that we all shared in trying to digest and process what, what has happened here with the rest of the world. I have some interesting and unique experiences. My 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 uh, memories of nine eleven are more about before and after nine eleven than the actual day. And let me explain what I mean. Uh, I've talked about uh, on several occasions. I have a godson named Patrick and. It was Patrick's in September. On September fourteenth was Patrick's birthday, and it would in nineteen uh, in two thousand one. It would have been his sixteenth birthday. Now school, of course, was starting in September, so for his sixteenth birthday, um, about a month before, about two or three weeks before, in mid to late, I believe it was sometime in late August, um, maybe mid August, I took Patrick to New York for his 16th birthday present he'd never been to new york and i love new york and so i thought it would be fun for him and i to go there and uh, and and i could show him you know all the different things he went to a yankee game in, in the old yankee stadium and we you know went to central park and we went to a broadway show and uh you know we went to the statue of liberty and so we did everything you're supposed to do in new york you know and it was a great trip and we both had a good time, and it was great to bond with him, and, and, and hopefully it's a, it's a memory that he will always remember. Um, but what was most interesting then in retrospect was when we did go, we were on the ferry on the way to the Statue of Liberty. And if you've ever been... To New York, you know that uh, the Statue of Liberty sits out in the middle of, uh, you know, Little Bay, 
near Ellis Island, and you you take a ferry, uh, you know, from Lower Manhattan, and you you take the ferry out to uh, to the Statue of Liberty. And at that time, this is August now. This is not September yet. This is mid-August. When you when you when you go, you then as you're out on the on the ferry going out to the Statue of Liberty, you can see the skyline of New York near the lower part of Manhattan. That's the famous you know shot that you see of the New York skyline from lower Manhattan. If you ever watch the TV show Barney Miller at the beginning uh, and the end of the of the show, they show that skyline. And, and, and that show was in the 70s and 80s. And you'll see there's the picture of the World Trade Center, the two towers. That's still there. And, and they, they didn't take those out on those old reruns. And so... We were, and the thing that's interesting about the World Trade Center is it was certainly a very, the two towers were certainly uh, iconic, and and when they were built, they were the, the tallest in the world. They were soon eclipsed by the John Hancock and the, uh, you know, the uh, the Sears Tower, uh, but they were iconic in that. And in in when they were put up in the late '60s, they were they were the tallest buildings, and they were unique. And and of course, they were in New York, but because they were in Lower Manhattan, and it was more the financial district, and it wasn't near Central Park, and it's not near Broadway, uh, it, it, they weren't necessarily major tourist attractions. You could go to the top of the World Trade Center in an observatory and look out. But most people, if they did that, they went to the Empire State Building, which was more in, you know, midtown Manhattan, close to Central Park and Broadway and and things like that. So while the World Trade Center towers were very uh, well-known and iconic, they weren't someplace where a lot of people went and saw in person or visited. And so I'll never forget, we were on this ferry, and as we're, as we're going now toward the, the Statue of Liberty, my 16-year-old godson at the time, you know, you couldn't help, but as, as, you're, as you're going away from, from lower Manhattan, and now you're looking at the skyline behind you in, in, the, in the little ferry boat, you can't help but notice the, the giant two twin towers. And so my... My godson says, well, what are those? He didn't really know. It just goes to show you how the World Trade Center, you know, everybody knows the Empire State Building, right? Because King Kong climbed up the Empire State Building. But as as iconic as the World Trade Center towers may have been, they weren't really that well known like the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building or the even the Chrysler Building. Um, because of where they were located, they weren't big tourist attractions. And so the general public may not have been as familiar with them or maybe even didn't even maybe have heard the name, but didn't even know what they were by sight. So it was an interesting target, really, when you think about it, because 
I guess from the terrorist standpoint, the World Trade Center signified commerce and um, and America's greed, right? I mean, I'm just assuming this. And that's why they chose those towers. But really, in terms of, of striking to the heart of, of like some kind of a, a symbol that was dear to people, I mean, I don't know if the World Trade Center was that symbol because I don't know if a lot of people outside of New York really knew the World Trade Centers. Certainly, uh, as I said before, the, the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building uh, in New York are much more iconic and well-known tourist attractions that everybody has heard of. Uh, obviously, from a symbolic standpoint, the U.S. Capitol, which may have been a target, or the Pentagon, obviously. These are, are, are well-known symbols. But the World Trade Center was an interesting was an interesting target because to them it meant, I think, as I said, this symbol of America's greed and capitalism. Um, but now we have great affection for the World Trade Centers because of what happened, but I don't know if we did before. But anyway, so I remember him asking me, well, what are those? Because you couldn't help but notice them. They were so big and they were distinctive. And I was like, oh, those are the, that's the World Trade Center. Those are called the Twin Towers. And I actually took a picture of him on the ferry with the Twin Towers in the background. He was in the foreground and the Twin Towers in the, in, in, in the background. And it's a great photo. And little did we know that less than a month later, those towers would not be there. And I, I'll never forget when I saw them both collapse and I saw the, the, the big hole that they left in that skyline photo that you'd always see of the New York skyline and lower Manhattan, you know, defined by the Twin Towers. And suddenly there was just this big empty space of blue sky. I immediately, that that night or that day, even as this was happening, I believe, I said, oh my gosh, you know, Patrick and I were just there last month and we were we didn't go up to the top of them. Because as I said, it really wasn't a tourist attraction, but we certainly saw them. And we took photos of them, and I, and I quickly went back to my photos that I took just a month before that I hadn't even put into a, a scrapbook for Patrick yet. I was still compiling the pictures and putting them together. And I showed my wife. I said, look, look at these pictures. I mean, the, there's the Twin Towers, and they're not there anymore. So that, for me, is a very memorable moment of, of you know connected to 9-11 was not just the event, but the fact that just less than a month before I was in New York and I saw the Twin Towers and we have these pictures of the Twin Towers and a month later they were gone. What was then ironic and, uh, you know, I don't even know what, which, which, what else you want to call it. Um, as, <laughs> as 
with me, there's always an Elton John connection, right? <laughs> to something and everything. I actually have two Elton John connections to 9-11. In early September, I was the uh, subject of a documentary about Elton John fans in September of 2001. Earlier in the summer, there was a show, and if you go on Google and you hit Elton Jim VH1, you will find this little segment up on YouTube. So if you haven't ever seen it, I would urge you to look at it because it's, it's really it's kind of fun. But it does have some historical background and connection to 9-11. In that summer of 2001, uh, there was this show on VH1 called Fan Club. And the, basically the idea of the show was they would choose a major uh, musical artist and they would feature four different fans who were major fans. And they would do a little vignette about each one, about their fandom and how they... Uh, you know, why they were fans and show their, you know, memorabilia collections or whatever made them unique fans of a specific artist. And they would even interview the specific artist as well and intercut the artist with within the show in connection with the, what the fans were saying and talking about. And so I was chosen as one of the four to be featured on this fan club edition concerning Elton John. And so on September 8th and September 9th of 2001, a film crew came to Chicago and filmed me for two days. And they talked to me and my wife and my mom because she took me to my first Elton John concert. And we went downtown and uh, I was on a radio show. I was doing some radio at the time as well as some writing. And they came to my home and they did... You know, they shot pictures of uh, of my memorabilia. And it was a nice little segment. It was about seven or eight minutes long. As I said, if you go on to Google um, or go on YouTube and just hit Elton Jim VH1, you'll find it. It's up there. And it was, uh, it was a very cool experience. And they were here for two days. And so, you know, after two days, you know, between the camera crew and the, and the producers and everything, you get, you get to know the people kind of well. You know, you're sticking around. You're having, you know, you're having dinner with them. They're at my house for 12 hours a day for the last two days. You know, we're traveling, you know, around the city and things like that. And, uh, you know, so you get, to, you get to know them. And they were only here for two days. But it was, it was very nice and enjoyable uh, little experience. And I was looking forward to this show being on later. It was on... Uh, on Thanksgiving night, in fact, is when it debuted in November. But they shot it on September 8th and September 9th. And then they were leaving on the 10th to go to Alabama to do another segment on another fan who lived in Alabama. So they were here in the 9th. And, you know, they, and we got done on the 9th and then they were leaving, I believe on the 10th and going to go to Alabama and then start to shoot for a couple of days over there. And I also remember, so that was fun and we got it done and everything was fine. Once again, that's September 9th. And when September 11th happened, 
if you recall, you know, uh, immediately all the airports were shut down for for at least a week, if not longer, because there was a fear of what was going to happen next. You know, since they hijacked these planes, might it happen again? There was amazing security. And, of course, that's where the TSA was born, and that's where the heightened security at the airports were concerned. I mean, you know, we, we forget now. It's been 20 years since we've had this heightened uh, security at at public places because of 9-11. It's become a part of our our life. You talk about COVID and, you know, the new normal. Well, the new normal of security at airports and security at, at buildings and things like that, uh, that's 20 years old now, folks. You can, you can peg it directly to 9-11. The formation of the Homeland Security Agency and the creation of the TSA, I mean, that is directly... Uh, a product of 9-11, and that's a part of our lives now. And some people have grown up always thinking that the TSA existed. Well, it didn't. It didn't exist before 9-11. Before 9-11, it's, it's almost, given the way the security is at airports now, it's almost impossible to think of the fact that you used to get to the airport perhaps a half hour before your flight took off. In fact, some people got there just before. I, I I used to work in public relations, and one of my we had to travel quite a bit. And I had a boss of mine that he would not want to get to the airport. It drives me crazy because I always like to be early for things, but he would not be there. Uh, we wouldn't. He would not want to leave to go to the airport until like at least 45 minutes before we would literally get to the airport security was a joke it was it was it was nothing you just walk through that thing you didn't have to take off your shoes you didn't open your bag there was nothing it was it was cursory at best and you walked through that metal detector and you know there, it, it, nobody was even really paying attention it was just there i think for show more than anything else and and you know anybody could go with you People, you know, we forget about this too. Now you can't, you know, you can't get into the gate unless you have a ticket. Well, that wasn't the case before 9-11. 21 years ago, if you were going to the gate, you brought your whole family with you. Say you were going on a vacation by yourself, you're, you know, your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters, everybody would be at the gate and they'd be waving goodbye to you. And then when you got to the gate, they'd be waiting for you at the gate. They wouldn't be waiting for you outside or or in the lobby, or by the ticketing thing, they would go right to the gate. We have forgotten that. That was just 20 years ago. That's completely foreign to a whole generation now that you could actually have. I mean, people used to, you'd get off the plane and you'd be greeted by your family. It was almost like you were, you know, like you were the Beatles or something. And those days are gone. Now when you get off a plane, you're just kind of getting off the plane and going to the next stop. But back then, your family could see you off right as you, at the they would they would sit there in the gate by the window and wait till your plane took off and watch you take off. That changed forever after nine eleven. So yeah, we've had to adapt to new normals. We don't we sometimes forget that's there's so you want to talk about twenty years ago that was uh, commemorating we, that was also twenty years ago you could do that. <laughs> But I'll never forget when 9-11 happened, 
since I had been with these people that were the producers and the camera people for the two days, they were kind of on my mind, right? I immediately flashed to them. I said, oh, my gosh, they're going to be stuck, you know, because now the airports are closed. And so I even called, I, I called like one of the producers and said, hey, did you guys, did you guys get out? And he's like, yeah, you know, we're, we're here in Alabama, but we don't know how long we're going to stay because all the airports are closed, you know. So it happened right around, right before 9-11. So my two memories before 9-11 are going to New York City in August and seeing the Twin Towers. And a month later, they were gone and literally... Two days before 9-11 is when I had this really cool experience of, of, of a camera crew filming me for this VH1 special. And, and then, wow, talk about, you know, so I'm sort of on this high, right, this kind of cool thing. Hey, look what happened to me. Well, that's, that, that look what happened to me and how cool was that was completely just stopped. And I wasn't telling that, you know, it was a cool, it was looking forward to telling that story to people like, hey, it was just so fun and, and all that. But that was gone. I mean, there, all you talked about after two days later, there was no talking about fun stuff. We were like, wow, what the hell is going on here? So then, of course, another Elton related uh, <laughs> uh, event. I already had tickets because in 2001, Elton was doing a, a series of concerts at Madison Square Garden in New York. And I already had tickets for that. And so I was a little leery of getting on a plane less than about a month or so, maybe a little more than a month. I, maybe it was late October. But I was a little leery, of course, of getting on a plane because finally the airports did open up. But you were there was a paranoia about certainly going on a plane. I mean, it was a scary thought. But once again, I was 20 years younger, and come on, this was Elton John at Madison Square Garden. So terrorism, schmerism, I have to go to see Elton, right? <laughs> So I did go, and I was, and I met a, a friend there who was also a, a, a big Elton fan. And he was from Boston. Now, don't forget the the planes that hit the World Trade Center were from Boston. So he also had to fly over. So we both were kind of like, you know, <laughs> hey, it's Elton, right? But so while we were in New York, and now this is probably a month or so after nine eleven, the city was still in shock and you could feel it when you landed there and at that time the cleanup of the 9-11 site was still going on that that took several months and so we decided to go down as be get as close as we could to to ground zero to just to see it. I mean, and it was all blocked off and it was not easy. You, you couldn't get, you could not get close, but it was still, I mean, it was still smoldering when we went there. It was still smoldering. Okay. So 
it wasn't you know on fire but it it still looked like a horrendous scene of destruction and ultimately violence and at the heart of it evil and it was still early in the in the cleanup process that you know those facades the, uh, the of the World Trade Center, those those kind of terrace looking facades that were standing, and you've seen pictures of those when the when the towers fell, some of those facades were still standing. Those were still there, and I have pictures of those. Now you could only get about four or five blocks. You know, you couldn't get right up to it because there was. Clean, major cleanup going on. There were, you know, and it, it wasn't safe. I mean, I think about that. I mean, you know, we didn't go down there with, with masks on. We probably should have in retrospect. Um, but we weren't on top of it. And it had been a month now. So, I mean, hopefully. But I'll never forget, we, we could only get so close. And the cab sort of dropped us off. And then we walked as close as we could. And then it was barricaded off. But I'll never forget walking through the neighborhoods to get close there. And there were some people that were there, but it wasn't a lot. But there were some. There was just a, you know, there were still people that were mourning the loss of their friends and relatives. And they would go there uh, just out of respect or out of a need to, like the same reason that we go to a cemetery, which is sad. And that's, that is the one, uh, that is the one takeaway when I went to Ground Zero at that time in mid to late October, uh, that's what Ground Zero felt like. It felt like, and in many ways, sadly, it was. It, it felt like a cemetery. There was the same solemn reverence while there was work going on, then there was the, the the loud sound of of machinery. Don't forget they were digging through. They were getting rid of all the debris. So it was certainly a work site, and it and it sounded like a construction site in many ways. That's what it looked like. But there was also a reverence around it, and not only for the people like me that were that were there just to observe it. And to sort of take it in and see firsthand what had happened here. And for me, it was even, you know, it was, it was, it was more, uh, you know, trying to process this because as I said earlier, I had just seen them, you know, two months before that standing there with Patrick taking pictures of them. And now I was, you know, within a couple of blocks and I'm seeing that they're gone and the destruction. And as I said to you before about the sky, that was the thing that struck me. I looked straight up into the air and it was just blue sky. And you know that two months before that, that space was inhabited by two huge major skyscrapers. And now it was empty and there was sky there as opposed to these buildings. 
And when I was struck, the 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 memory I'll never forget that facade standing there. That was very chilling to to remind you of what was there, because for the most part, everything else was gone. It 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 was complete destruction. But I have two vivid memories of visiting Ground Zero in October of 2001. First was the surrounding neighborhood, the surrounding buildings, many of them apartment buildings, because as I said, the World Trade Center towers were in lower Manhattan in the financial district, but but it was also kind of a neighborhood as well. It wasn't just all buildings. And because the, the taxi cabs when we went down there could only uh, go a certain point, and then there, you know, all the streets were blocked, you, we had to walk and get as close as we could. And as we walked down the streets, the side streets, in the vicinity of Ground Zero, you could still see, as I said, this was only a month or so after, you could still see the remnants of that day. The streets surrounding that were destroyed. The streets were cracked. There were huge holes because of the debris that fell. So many of the streets, you, you as you walk down, you saw exposed, you know, water pipes and water mains because the streets were 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 destroyed by the by the by the the falling debris and sidewalks. They were cr- the sidewalks were cracked and the streets were 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 were, were open. And if you, as you looked at the side of the buildings, if you see those, uh, you know the when the when the when the when the towers fell, you saw the the amazing, just unbelievable cloud of smoke and debris and ash and concrete and just the the combination of all that falling and that soot still covered the buildings for blocks away from the Twin Towers. And I'll never forget looking at the windows of the apartments and the surrounding buildings. They were covered in in thick soot that was from the towers coming down. So the buildings were were filled with this this dust and this dirt and this in this combination of concrete, whatever it was, and the windows, and people were living in there because you saw like the windows were actually, you know, opened a little. So you could see that people were living in there, but the, but the windows were just, were covered. So you saw this destruction of the street, which you never thought about. Like, yeah, when, the, when those things came crashing down, right, they had to, they had to affect the, the surrounding area. And this is the way the surrounding area was affected. It, it looked like a bomb went off, not only at ground zero, obviously, but the surrounding area, the collateral damage was the neighborhood around it. The streets were, were torn apart. The sidewalks were torn apart when those 
buildings fell. They the, the, that debris had to fall somewhere, and and have to wreak havoc on on the surrounding neighborhood, and it did. So visually, you saw what looked like just you know a a chaotic, which is exactly what it was. It looked like it was a it was a, a bomb had gone off. It was what happened here. It looked like. You know, the blitz, when you see those pictures in World War II of when, when London was being bombed, just total destruction, you know, blocks away, a mile or so away from ground zero as a byproduct of those buildings falling. The dirt, the soot, and the destruction of the surrounding infrastructure, which you didn't think about until you, you were right in the middle of it. And then... What will I will always remember was the smell. As we got closer to ground zero, and as I said, we could only get two or three blocks from the actual site, but you were still close enough. The smell. Because by now, there was cleanup going on, right? This was a month or so afterward. And it was a very odd smell because there was a, clear smell of like detergent or ammonia so they were obviously cleaning something but then there was also this musty dusty smell that was still hovering and the neighborhood itself as i said it, the site was still smoldering and you could still feel the remnants i you know, i wasn't coughing but it you could still there was still a, a a thickness in the air around there, more than a month later. So there was this 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 musty, dusty smell that was still hovering over nine or around Ground Zero, but then there was this very distinct kind of antiseptic, strong ammonia smell. Now I don't know if they were using some cleaning things, or maybe this was the smell of. Of all the computers that blew up, I don't know, but I just never forget that smell. It was a very odd mix of ammonia and dust and dirt. And we didn't stay there for too long because it it, 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 it did feel odd to be there. You almost felt like you were infringing on, on something. Everybody was quiet. There was no talking. It was very reverential. It did feel like a cemetery. In many ways, it was. So there was a respect. There was a sadness. There was still that same emotion you had when you saw this in person. Incredulous. You you were still in shock. The initial shock of 9-11 was still with you. And when you saw it in person, you, you really couldn't believe it. it you, if you couldn't believe it when you saw it on television... If you saw it in person, you really now it became real because of the smell, because of the the thickness in the air, and and that and all those those feelings and emotions that immediately hit when I was watching it on TV came back again. The sadness, the shock. The anger, the the confusion of what ha- what the heck is going on here, and uh, 
I remember when you left there and it was an odd feeling because I was glad I went, but I was sad I went because I was sad that I had that I that 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 existed. It was that was the sadness was that this is real. And it, there was a, a, a sadness. And uh, in years since, we have gone back to the 9-11 Museum and the memorial. And I'll never forget being in that same area just a month after. And then it was, it was very uh, inspiring to go back there years later and see the museum and see the, the memorial because it's what a difference it went from devastation and sadness to uh you know you, you can't say happiness but peace at least in that space and uh and you still see the blue skies there that were not there for a while and now they're actually kind of a nice tribute to that and so um, when I think of 9-11, I certainly think of watching it on TV. And the way I discovered what was happening, interestingly enough, was I turned on my radio and I was listening to Howard Stern. I listened to Howard Stern. And at that time, he was still on free radio and he was on a Chicago station that was owned by CBS. And when I turned on the radio, they had a simulcast of the all-news station. And now this was a music station that he was on. So I thought it was strange. Like, well, why? Why? How did my? How did my? my how did my radio station get changed to the all-news station overnight? What was happening was that CBS just simulcast the news station on all their stations because this was such a horrific event. Well, I didn't know that. I turned my radio on on the, the normal channel, and I was hearing all news. And I wasn't even really listening. And then as I started to listen closer, I'm hearing about this plane that went into uh, you know one of the World Trade Centers. So I quickly turned on the television in our kitchen, and then I saw what was happening. But it was because I was listening to the radio. I woke up that morning completely unaware of what was happening. And if it wasn't for the radio station, I'm glad because I might not have turned the TV on. I don't watch the TV in the morning. So thankfully they did do that simulcast, which, you know, made me aware that something crazy happened. I thought, you know, a couple of weeks before that, uh, a private plane had hit a skyscraper, an apartment building in New York. It went right into an apartment building. It It was a, you know, it was a, a small private plane. And I went, oh my gosh, again? Because that was what the first reports were, that a plane had gone into this thing. So you're thinking, of course, it was some an accident and somebody who's not doesn't know how to fly flew into a skyscraper. It happened again. And then, of course, when you saw, which I did see live, when that other plane hit, wow. Uh, what a swirl of emotions. What a memorable day. And as I said, what's interesting is that I have memories not only of that moment, but before that moment, seeing the Twin Towers and 
a month later after seeing Ground Zero and seeing the result of that horrific event. And um, it's an interesting time, as I said, this year. This, we don't celebrate this. We commemorate it. Uh, we should never forget it. If you haven't seen any TV specials, I would urge you to look some up if you, if you haven't seen any, just to remind yourself. But it really is our generation's Pearl Harbor. And in many ways, it's even worse because Pearl Harbor was an act of war. And at the end of the day, I mean, violence is violence, right? You can justify murder any way you want, but we kill people in a war and we kill people on the street. Murder is murder. We, we kind of justify it in some way and we put it in a different category when it's an act of war. But when all is said and done, murder is murder. And death is death. And deliberate death Murder is regardless of the circumstances and the context that we want to try to somehow alleviate our acts or our guilt over it. But if you want to do that, I would say that 9-11 may be even more um, serious than Pearl Harbor in that, no doubt, both terrible losses of life terrible moments in our history showed our vulnerability um, a loss of life needless but what made 9-11 I think more jarring was that if you do place things in 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 a wartime act and a a, a civilian act you could say that Pearl Harbor was an act of war. There was a war going on and we were attacked at a military base. What made 9-11 so unique and what made it such a, a horrific and evil, evil, uh, you know, act was that it, it was, it was against regular citizens who were just going about their business and going about their daily lives. You can make, a, you can make an argument that the soldiers at Pearl Harbor were at least you know, in a military mode. They were there. They were trained. Um, they certainly never expected it, but they were certainly trained for something like that perhaps to happen in the back of their minds. They never would have expected it to happen, but they certainly realized that they were in the military while a war was going on, and there was always a chance that something could happen, right? They were on warships, so they weren't completely away from a possible violent act, right? That wasn't out of the, the realm of possibility. Whereas 9-11 happened in an urban setting, uh, in a non-military target where people were just going about their business on a regular day, on a regular morning, on a regular work day. And it happened in a large city where people are living, the biggest city in our country, not in some remote um, you know, naval base in Hawaii in the Pacific where only 
military people were attacked, but civilians were attacked here deliberately without any warning, without any thought that they would be attacked. So in many ways, you can look at 9-11 as being a much more heinous act because it attacked the biggest city in our country. It attacked uh, civilian people who were not expecting any kind of retaliation against them. They were just going about their lives. And that's the sadness that people, you know, went and said goodbye to their loved ones that day and had every expectation that they would see them at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock later that night like they had every other day. And yet they wouldn't. Whereas if you said goodbye to your soldier, you knew that there was some possibility of danger that they were getting into. That doesn't make it any easier. But the fact that it was an attack on a city, on civilians, on our way of life, um, you know, buildings where people were working. They weren't there to, to protect our country like they were on warships in Pearl Harbor. They were just going about their business. They were, they were going to work that day to, to, put, to earn money, to put bread on their table for their families. And they were attacked, and our country was attacked. And so the takeaway of 9-11 is that uh, it was personal. And I think that's what was most jarring for us is that we didn't realize the hatred that was out there for us. And I don't think we've ever fully recovered from 9-11. And I think we may never. It was so jolting. It showed our vulnerability. It 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 it, it showed, as I said before, how... Uh, we had no idea the hate that people had for America in other parts of the world. As much as we always thought that we were kind of the guardian of the world, we realized that in many ways we were an enemy as well. And so it was a big wake-up call. I think we are still reeling from it, and now COVID has only added to that. If you weren't alive, I would urge you, to do some research and watch the video and look at the pictures and realize the statement that was made and the suffering and the pain and the shock and the sadness and the anger of that day. And if you were alive and you did see it, uh, I think like my parents at World War II and, and Pearl Harbor, it's a day we will never forget and sadly, it's a day that stays with us still. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. And don't forget, tell your friends, tell your family, send them a link, send them a message that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 277. I'm Elton Jim Toronto. I ain't here on business. I'm only here for fun. 
You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic from the end of the web to your screen. Never forget. <laughs>